Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stimulus standstill, lawmakers still in deal deadlock just hours before the Democrats' deadline ends. Silence secured, the final presidential debate will use a mute button. And trialing times, two countries, two vaccines. We spotlight efforts to find a way out of the pandemic. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to all our first movers all around the globe. Great to have you with us as the stimulus soap opera drags on in Washington. It's do or die deal time as uh, Democrats have that 48 hour window that closes by the end of today. And as a result, stocks are yo-yoing up and down. U.S. futures, as you can see right now, are higher, taking back at least some of Monday's losses on word that progress is being made and talks will continue today. We shall see European and Asian stocks pretty mixed, as you can see on the board there too. The S&P and the Nasdaq fell some one and a half percent Monday. The heavy hitters like Apple, Microsoft, Tesla pulling back some one and a half percent, as you can see, or more. Remember, Senate Republicans still have to agree, and their message has been bigger is not necessarily better. President Trump, though, said just minutes ago he believes that the Senate Republicans will back a deal. We'll see what happens. I have to say I remain skeptical. And amid all the stimulus uncertainty, profit uncertainty too, at least on Wall Street, IBM falling pre-market after failing to provide guidance about the outlook. Investors are rewarding businesses that can give that guidance and are increasingly less forgiving of those that simply can't. The banks with strong trading businesses, meanwhile, continue to surprise too. Swiss giant UBS out with its strongest Q3 results in a decade, profits rising almost 100%. It also set aside fewer than $90 million for bad loan provisions, a third of the money booked in the previous two quarters. And one breaking story at this hour, too. Sources telling CNN that the U.S. will sue Google for alleged anti-competitive abuses related to search functions later today. All the details on that coming up later on in the show. There's plenty to get through. Let's get to the drivers. The microphones of President Trump and his Democratic rival Joe Biden will be muted at key moments of Thursday's final presidential debate after chaotic interruptions disrupted their first face-off. Boris Sanchez joins me now. Boris and the commission acknowledged that one party here is going to say, look, you're not going far enough. And the other party, a.k.a. President Trump, is going to say, hang on a second, that's not fair. And that's kind of exactly what we got. Yeah, there's a lot of contention about this decision from the Commission on Presidential Debates. Uh, Essentially, the debate is broken up into six 15-minute segments, and each candidate gets two minutes at the beginning of that segment to speak without interruption. And the way that the Commission is going to enforce that rule is by muting one of the microphones of these two candidates as their opponent is speaking. This is not something that the Trump campaign uh, is eager about. Uh, A Trump campaign official effectively saying that this reveals the commission's bias for Joe Biden. Uh, The president himself actually this morning on on a conservative news outlet saying that he believes that this has happened to him before. The president delving into conspiracy here after he had a mic issue during a 2016 debate with Hillary Clinton. Uh, Of course, there was no muting of his mic. The audience could hear everything he was saying. It appeared to just clip at different points. That's not stopping the president from moving forward with that claim, though. Uh, Of course, 
one of the big questions here is how Republicans are going to ultimately defend this stance from the president, considering that many of them argued that during the first debate, Joe Biden started the interruptions by interrupting President Trump during one of his initial responses. It is going to be a huge night on Thursday. It's going to be the final opportunity for these two opponents with such a huge audience to go head to head and deliver their message to the American people. Julia. Yeah, it's going to be a big night to watch. Boris, someone else who wishes that perhaps they could uh, hit the mute button on President Trump is Dr. Fauci, the president calling into question Fauci's credibility once again. Yesterday, Fauci, cool as a cucumber, said, look, it's a distraction and quoted the Godfather. Talk us through this. <laughs> yeah, uh, Fauci channeling Michael Corleone, saying that this is not personal, it's strictly business, that Fauci just wants the American people to be protected and to follow the science when it comes to protecting themselves from the coronavirus. Uh, the president, though, this morning, once again, going after Fauci uh, with a bit more uh, tame remarks than we've seen in the past. Previously, the president uh, falsely arguing that Fauci has been wrong on an array of issues when it comes to coronavirus claiming that hundreds of thousands more people would have died if he had followed Fauci's advice than already have in the United States. Today, the president saying that he believes that Fauci is a Democrat, a good friend of the Cuomo family. Uh, quick fact check, Fauci is not affiliated with either political party. The president, though, yesterday making clear that he feels that firing Anthony Fauci would present a lot more problems for him. So it's just something he apparently has to stomach. Julia. Yes. And if I remember in the movie, when you say nothing personal, strictly business, it's right before you bump someone off, which is uh, interesting, too. <laughs> but um, we will say no more about that. Boris Sanchez, thank you so much for that. Now, besides stimulus plans and earnings reports, many analysts say what's going to be pivotal for economic recovery and turning the corner here is the timing of a vaccine. And in China, the world's number two economy, they're now cautiously rolling out coronavirus vaccines before the conclusion of phase three trials and demand is already high, as David Culver reports. They arrived early from all over China. Folks lured to the international manufacturing hub of Iwu City, specifically to this small community hospital. This is one of the first public locations where China's rolled out an experimental COVID-19 vaccine. They began injecting people over the weekend. The cost? About 60 U.S. dollars for two doses. Word spread quickly. Some showed up Monday thinking they'd get a shot. Annie Koo among them. This is something really important to you, isn't it? I asked her. Yes, she replied, adding, because, well, if you have the vaccine, it's much safer to leave the country. For more than 20 years, Koo's worked in import-export in Chile and returned home to China amidst the outbreak. She flew to Iwu the night before we met her. It's a two-hour flight from her home in southern China eager and admittedly a bit desperate for immunity. And so they told you they don't have any and so you have to go find another place. Hospital staff confirmed to CNN that they had run out. Local officials later announced this distribution was only for those with specific foreign travel needs and pre-approval. Ku was not the only one disappointed. Notice the groups of people waiting around the hospital parking lot. Some of them traveled in from neighboring provinces wanting the vaccine. Yeah, would you take the vaccine? Originally from Syria, we met Enes Chahota as he pulled up with his young daughter and wife in the backseat of their car. He was curious, if not also a bit hesitant. If, if you were to walk in there and they had it, would you take it today? Uh, actually, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answer. As you kind of go through this main entrance here, we do know folks are going in to inquire about how they might be part 
of this trial, essentially, because you got to remember, this is part of the emergency approval use granted by the Chinese government. This is not an actual release of an approved drug as of yet. The vaccine distributed at this Ewu hospital is made by Sinovac Biotech. CNN took you through the Beijing-based biotech company in August. It is one of more than a dozen Chinese companies working on a coronavirus vaccine. At the time of our visit in late summer, they were constructing a new facility to meet the production demands while still going through phase three clinical trials, which have not yet concluded. It all seemed to be happening at rapid speeds. None of the steps is uh, sacrificing any quality of our vaccine. So because Sinovac's goal is to provide a vaccine with good quality, good safety, good immunogenicity to, to the people in the, in the world. China has been trying to push past the early allegations of mishandling, cover-ups, and silencing of whistleblowers surrounding the initial outbreak in Wuhan. And instead, officials here have highlighted their swift and seemingly successful responses to many cluster outbreaks. The most recent, in Qingdao last week, following a major travel holiday. After only a handful of confirmed cases surfaced, health officials began strict contact tracing and tested more than 10 million people in less than a week. And life, it seems, quickly returned to near normal again. But that's mostly within China, a bubble of sorts. For some whose livelihood is rooted in other parts of the world, where cases are surging once again, their only hope may be the vaccine. Annie Koo and the others now on to the next location to track one down. David Culver, CNN, Iwu, China. Well, let's move on to the next location. In the United Kingdom, the government is launching the first human challenge studies for the novel coronavirus. A group of volunteers will be deliberately infected with COVID-19 after being injected with a potential vaccine. Phil Black joins us from London. Phil, the critics here would say without a proven vaccine, this is unethical. These people are certainly brave taking part in this study. What more do we know? So uh, the way these uh, trials will work, Julia, is that uh, volunteers, indeed, brave, courageous, but financially uh, incentivized volunteers and compensated volunteers will be given a potential vaccine. And then some weeks later, they'll come here to London's Royal Free Hospital, where they will be deliberately dosed with the virus. And doctors will then assess whether the vaccine does its job. Uh, and they believe that this is useful to more efficiently assess and identify the most promising of the many vaccines that are being developed around the world. Even before they get to that point, though, they need a round of volunteers who will simply be exposed to the virus itself in what they call a characterization study. This is a very specific study to increase understanding of the virus, but also to refine and develop the specific dose that will be used to then challenge the vaccines in those trials which follow. I spoke to Dr. Martin Johnson, one of the doctors responsible for setting up uh, this challenge trial program. This is what he explained to me uh, in terms of why they need to, first of all, infect volunteers or seek to infect volunteers before you even introduce potential vaccines. Take a listen. So we're basically watching disease in motion right from the very start of inoculation right through to the disease going out of the body. So it gives us an absolute view of what is happening to, to, to the human body during an infectious process. And what is the ideal reaction that you're trying to trigger? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the minimum number of symptoms that are safe and then give us enough scientific evidence. 
ethically risk minimization is key to conducting these trials, but they are controversial. Because you need to minimize risk, you need to use young, healthy volunteers. Uh, critics of challenge trials say that means you're dealing with a very limited profile, and these are people who do not represent those in the broader community who most need protection from an effective vaccine. But there is still risk, because as you point out, there is no effective guaranteed treatment for COVID-19. It will all be assessed and monitored and overseen by an ethics committee. And the job of that committee is to ensure that risk is minimized, but also mm. that the risk is balanced by the potential rewards that could flow from conducting these trials, Julia. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Balancing all of these things to get a vaccine as efficacious as possible in the soonest possible time. Phil Black, thank you so much for that update there. Fascinating to see. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Russia has recorded its largest daily increase in coronavirus infections. But despite the rise, officials don't believe a full lockdown is necessary. Russia has the fourth highest number of coronavirus cases now in the world. That's in contrast to Latin America, where the trend in most countries is now downwards. New cases slowing right down, particularly in Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Peru and Colombia also moving in the right direction. Argentina, however, has just surpassed one million cases. And staying in Latin America, it's not official yet, but the socialist candidate appears to be the winner of Bolivia's high-stakes presidential election. The Luis Arce, handpicked by former President Evo Morales, is already receiving congratulatory messages, and his rival has accepted defeat. All right, so to come here on First Move, the cost of Bidenomics. Americans will be poorer and unemployment higher under a President Byman, says a new report from the Hoover Institute, we discuss with author Kevin Hassett. And Building Resilience, the executive chairman of high-end gym chain Equinox, joins me as the industry grapples with the coronavirus pandemic and a brewing winter. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. A former vice president, Joe Biden, is promising faster economic growth and a robust or more robust jobs market than we've seen during the Trump years if elected president. Moody's Analytics says almost seven and a half million more jobs will be created under a Biden administration than under President Trump. But a new study from the Hoover Institute warns that Biden economics will have the exact opposite effect. It says Biden's tax and spending plans will lead to almost 5 million fewer full-time jobs by 2030. It sees GDP contracting by some 8% by 2030 to a loss of some $2.5 trillion in economic output. And it sees the medium household income of Americans falling by some $6,500. So what's going on? Well, Kevin Hassett joins us now. He's former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisers under President Trump. He's also a co-author of the Hoover Institute report. Kevin, fantastic to have you on the show. Oh, it's There's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Lots of components to this tax, regulation, energy, healthcare. What do you see as the most damaging aspect of Bidenomics? 
Right. Well, I think that uh, you, you listed them correctly. And, and, you know, before we even go into the scale of the effect, we should sort of put the policies on the table, which with everybody focusing on the president's foibles of Hunter Biden and so on, that no one's actually looking at the policy proposals, and, and especially in totality. And that's what our paper at the Hoover Institution does. And so I think that the tax policy, to answer your question, is probably the most harmful. And it's really because uh, Vice President Biden has proposed removing the cap on Social Security, which is 12.4% tax that gets added for every pass-through uh, entity in the U.S. And to put that in perspective, it lifts the marginal tax rate on small businesses from a little under 40% in the U.S. to about 55%. And uh, that tax hike affects firms that employ you know, about 50 million people. 40 or 50 million, it's something you have to estimate. And so that's a really big negative effect. And if you consider that small businesses right now are just barely hanging on because the economy's been shut down for a year, if they really do hit uh, the economy with a tax hike like that, which I doubt they would, I mean, they're not that silly. Uh, but if, if they did, then it would be catastrophic for the US economy. Uh, the second best or, or you know, biggest effect uh, in, in the proposal is their energy proposal, which basically moves all uh, miles in the passenger fleet to electric cars just about, uh, which increases the uh, demand for power generation in the U.S. by 25%. To put 25% in perspective, that's how much power generation has increased in the U.S. since 1979, right? So it's a really big change. At the same time, they take fossil fuels completely offline, and right now, fossil fuels uh, produce about 70% of power in the U.S. So, so you're basically putting 95% of power generation in the U.S. on the table. And, and again, that's an extremely disruptive thing. Now, we could talk about the climate benefits. I think they might be significant from that. But the actual, you know, actual economic disruption from it is really significant. OK, I'm going to stop you there because I want to go back to the first thing that you talked about, which was taxes, because I do think this is incredibly important. I mean, a lot of people are talking about, look, if you do, if you earn less than four hundred thousand dollars a year and we can separate tax rises on, on payroll taxes and, and personal income from the loss of deductions, which you've also mentioned. I think the thing that people have to understand here as well is that for many small businesses, it's one to two people. They often get taxed at the personal tax rate. So if you're raising taxes on individuals, it can impact small business operations as well. And this is also especially, the point that you're making. That's right. And especially think about this. Think about the, the small businesses that you deal with. Some of them employ a lot of people and some of them don't. But the ones that employ people tend to probably the person who owns the business makes more than $400,000 in the U.S. And so therefore, this huge tax hike from less than 40 percent to about 55 percent. And that's even before we count uh, state and local taxes. Uh, that big tax rate hike affects firms that basically employ about half of workers in the U.S. And so what the Democrats are saying is, oh, well, it's not that many tax returns, which is true, uh, but it's a huge amount of the employment in the small business sector. Yeah, we have to understand the difference here, Kevin. And to mm -hmm. go to your point on energy as well, I mean, President, um, sorry, Joe Biden has said, look, he, he doesn't officially support the Green New Deal and neither does Kamala Harris. But what you're saying is some of the measures that they're already proposing go way beyond anything that we saw in, in Obama's era. I guess the counter to this would be they are saying, and I think you're agreeing that a net 1.3 million additional workers would be required as a result, in addition to the unquantifiable benefits of the climate. But what you're saying is at this point in time, economically, it, it's, a, it, it's a stranglehold. On the economy. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and just to use an extreme example, like like suppose that we we said that you know you're not allowed to ride around in taxis or Ubers. Everybody has to take a rickshaw. You would create a lot of jobs because there'd be a lot of people out there pulling rickshaws, but you wouldn't improve the efficiency of the economy. And so uh, when you're looking at a change like this that creates jobs, you have to think about well, what are those people doing? Uh, compared to what they're doing now, and that change in productivity, we estimate, is a reduction of about 2%. That, the, but, it, but again, to be fair to Vice President Biden, that, you know, that's our job is to look at it from both sides. President Obama right. had a bunch of very, very left-wing uh, policies. So you might recall that he was like really opposed to NAFTA and, and criticized Hillary Clinton when he ran against her in the primaries for supporting NAFTA. But then he was in the White House and he kind of dropped that stuff. And I think that you know, moderate Biden supporters expect that, you know, all of these uh, far left proposals are going to be dropped as soon as he's elected and that he just basically did that to get the Sanders supporters not to, you know, revolt against him and so on. And so I think that that's possible. But the argument against that would just be that they're going to control Congress if he's elected almost for sure. And, you know, there are a heck of a lot of people in Congress that love these ideas. And if they pass it, is Biden going to veto it? You know, probably not. And and presidents, especially first-term presidents, tend to have a really hard time controlling their own Congress when it's under their party. What one Bush administration official once said to me that when they lost the House, it actually made their life easier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the challenge, isn't it, as well? And when yeah. you're trying to predict, and to your first point, and I think it's a really important one, we're not talking about policy, we're not talking about economic policy. And, you know, we're in a, a tragic situation with over 10 million people in this country still out of work, potentially more that we don't quantify. Um, right. So give me your sense to your point as well about the difference between what Moody's analytics is saying when they've assessed the two plans and said, hang on a second, you know, Joe Biden's going to create 7 million more jobs than President Trump would have over the next four years. Does it simply come down to a fact that they put more weight behind government spending, consumption and stimulus in general versus you look at some of the drawbacks perhaps of, of high taxes and, and higher regulation? Right. Well, well, the, the Moody's uh, study is really fundamentally flawed. And, you know, the author of the study fundraises for Democrats and so on. And, and so uh, I don't have to attack his motives. But the fact is that all this, like, like you can't just, just think about it. You, you, you can't increase tax rates on pastors that employ just about everybody from a little less than 40 to 55 and not have a negative impact. Right. And so therefore, they're not they're assuming there is no negative impact for that. They, you can't put 95 percent of power generation of the U.S. on the table and then not have a disruptive effect if you're really doing it. So, of course, they're not modeling that. They're just modeling a really big stimulus, which they expect the Democrats will pass and they expect that President Trump won't. But in fact, President Trump is on the record saying he wants a stimulus. And in fact, Secretary Mnuchin was negotiating yesterday for more than an hour with Speaker Pelosi about it still. So, so anyway, so I think their counterfactual is wrong. And I think that they've ignored the negative policies. And they've done that because really the person who's a Democratic fundraiser is abusing the Moody's name uh, in order to make political points. And it's pretty, if I were a, a Moody's CEO, I'd be pretty upset about it, frankly. You know, it's interesting, Kevin. Some critics would perhaps look at this analysis and look at you and say your analysis yeah. is fundamentally flawed because of your association with the White House. How would oh, you respond oh, right. to that? But, but, but that's why I focused our conversation, Julia, not on the sort of 8 percent of the stuff that you led with. Like, so so you can like my model or not. But I can say that our model is, you know, we've got code we'll share with anybody. Anyone wants to try to fiddle with it and see what they get. Right. We'll, you know, we we'll share the code with them, but we focus just on the policies. And so, so just right now, if you and I were, were having dinner and I said, hey, we've lifted the tax rate on pastor entities from about 40 to about 55, you know, 
how, how and, and that employs you know more than 50 billion people how many people will be affected by that and lose their jobs you, know, you would guesstimate that it would be something negative right that you're not going to get a positive out of that and then if i said hey if you do that and you also you know spend a trillion on uh, government spending and that'll jack up the economy what's the net you're still going to probably have a hard time getting you know the massive job creation that moody's does right it, it's a, so so i think that by putting the facts on the table you guys uh, are here at CNN International. We're doing an amazing uh, service because basically what we need is all the world's economists and, and uh, financial market participants and, and individuals to look at these things and you know decide for themselves you know what direction they think they take. Uh, and and I think getting it into a positive direction is really kind of a a, a leap worthy of that old motorcyclist uh, evil can evil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. Just, we I'm have really to debate. Sure. You could do that. We have to be able to bait the differences between policies. And uh, thank you for making the model uh, open access because people need to understand the numbers here and the implications. Very quickly, Kevin, your view, if stimulus is not agreed by the Democrats' deadline, one, do you think it can be? Is there any chance? And what happens to the economy if we don't see further stimulus before uh, January and the inauguration of whichever president wins? Well, well, the third quarter of the U.S. is really a rip-roaring quarter uh, that, you know, there are whisper numbers that make it so big, the growth rate, that you almost recapture the ground that you lost in terms of output in the second quarter. And so the question is, what happens after that? I think that if uh, Vice President Biden is going to come in and lift those taxes and things, you know, and, and again, I, I gave you the argument for why he might decide not to do that. Uh, then you're going to need a huge stimulus because all these businesses that are just about out of cash because they've been treading water for eight months, they're going to probably give up because uh, they're just like, oh, with a tax hike that that much, I, there's no point in, in operating. Uh, but, you know, I think that if you had no policy at all, it's possible that we've recovered enough, especially if we get the virus under control. In the U.S., the, the red states are basically wide open and their economies are humming. The blue states are basically shut. You know, here in D.C., where I live, about 40 percent of businesses are still shut. And, you know, those those blue states that are shut, you know, they're going to have to open up or they're going to have to go bankrupt. They're going to have to choose. Uh, and if they open up, then I'm, you, you could probably get by without much of a stimulus. But if you're going to hit the economy with a big negative policy shock, then you sure better stimulate it at the same time. Yeah. And the one point eight trillion dollar question there was if we get the virus under control. Sure. Kevin Hassett, great to have you on. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a lot. For that. Great to be here. Thank you. The former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisers under President Trump. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stock markets are up and running this Tuesday, as expected, to higher open on Wall Street. Who says talk is cheap? Stocks are rising as hope springs eternal for a U.S. emergency aid deal before House Speaker Pelosi's deadline tonight. We shall see. Also in focus, corporate earnings, Procter & Gamble, P&G reporting a better than expected 9% sales jump and raising its 2020 forecasts to consumers keep stocking up on the essentials. It matters if they can provide guidance. And this is one company that has also Netflix results out later today. The streaming service could announce its first U.S. price hikes in almost two years In the meantime, sources tell CNN that the U.S. could file an antitrust suit against Google as soon as today in what would be the largest U.S. antitrust case against a tech company in decades. The suit will allege that Google stifles competition in search. More on all of this coming up later on in the show. In the meantime, moving the indoors, outdoors is just one of the ways businesses like gyms are responding to the COVID age. 
But with winter coming, for many of us, that's just another economic challenge facing the sector. Equinox, the luxury gym chain, is holding outside classes, as you can see, and indoors, strict protocols are in place like mask wearing and temperature checks, among others. Harvey Spivak is executive chairman and managing partner of Equinox Holdings, and he joins us now. Harvey, fantastic to have you on the show once again. The last time you and I spoke, you were just starting to get the New York gyms up and running. Talk us through what you're seeing in terms of people coming back and how the business is doing. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me back. Um, you, you know, we've been um, really, really pleased with what we've seen so far in, in, in New York. Our, our members are thrilled that we have uh, reopened. And what they're really appreciative of is our standards. I mean, we've we've taken oftentimes what is required by local government to, to a whole nother level, working with our own team of epidemiologists um, and, and experts to make sure we protect uh, our employees and our community to the best uh, uh, extent possible. And so our members, you know, we, we survey them and, and, you know, 90 plus percent, it's almost like 95% are extremely satisfied with the standards that we have in our clubs. Um, and so they're, they're, they're really excited to get back to um, a more of a normal routine. They've fatigued uh, doing Instagram live in their, in their living rooms or pushing the coffee table out of the way. Um, so they're engaging with us uh, in the clubs. They're engaging with, with us outdoors in the wild um, at Equinox and they're engaging with us digitally. So uh, I'm very excited about what's happening right now based on our opening in New York in September. Harvey, full disclosure, and you and I talked about this the last time you were on as well. I am an Equinox member and in the past week I've been back and I have to say I'm incredibly impressed by the cleaning, by the measures that you've taken. What I fear for for you is that and it's my gym and it's anecdotal, but I've spoken to a number of people who feel the same. There's barely anybody in the gym. At times, you're sort of dwarfed by the number of people in their cleaning. Harvey, how is this sustainable? How long can you sustain having relatively so few members back in the gym? So, so Julia, first, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that you've come back and I've had a great experience, um, as I just uh, suggested what we've heard from other members because I was right. going to ask myself a question of you of whether you did it or not. But, um, <laughs> you have to now look at the day a little bit differently. So historically, you know, you've come whenever you've wanted to come. And so oftentimes that means that we would have peak times throughout the day. Now, because you're through the app scheduling when you come to, uh, to the club, we're, we're elongating the day and spreading out that usage throughout the day. And while there's still more demand, let's call it after work or in the morning, people are now coming more thoroughly throughout the day. So you, you definitely have less people um, at any given hour, that's to protect everybody. Um, but at the same time, over the course of the day, we still get a, a, lot of, a lot of visits. And so what we're seeing is those members who have resumed their memberships uh, on, on balance are using the club at the same frequency they have before. What we need to see happen is uh, more people get comfortable that it's okay to come back or meet more people even more importantly, coming back to the major urban cities. So in a city like New York, um, the office occupancy right now is 10%. And so a lot of those people have you know, gone back, whether they're young, they've gone back to their home with their parents, or they've relocated temporarily. And so we need more of those people to come back um, to the major cities, whether it be New York or, or Boston, particularly the East Coast of the US. Uh, London's a little bit different. We're seeing a, a higher usage than we see uh, in New York, even though we have the same protocols in terms of scheduling. Mm. Can you give me a percent how many people are back? Is it, is it more than a third of people, just based on what you were saying about New York, if we look about the whole portfolio, are more than a third of, of customers back using the gym or is it less than that? 
So, so no, it's, it's dramatically more. It's about 2x of that. A third is our occupancy requirement. So we're only allowed to have a third of the members using the club any given time based on our, our, our occupancy. And so that's what we're controlling through the scheduling. But in terms of the members who have come back, it's, 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 it's more than 2x that. Okay, Harvey, talk to me about the financials then in that case. As you said, you're optimistic that you can encourage people to come back, but it's progress and we're heading into the winter months. There's reports that you're in restructuring talks. I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal about no one ruling out the risks of bankruptcy at some point in the future. What can you tell us here and can we rule that out here and now? Uh, we, we, we can rule that out. That, that, that article is, is false um, and was irresponsible journalism. We are not in restructuring talks. We are not talking about bankruptcy. Um, we're comfortable with our current financial situation. Obviously, we are under continue to be under a lot of pressure. And the sooner um, you know, COVID gets resolved through, you know, I'll say all three vaccinations, treatments, and testing um, will make a big difference in our business. But none of that is accurate. Okay, we're setting the record straight here on First Move. And, and finally, I believe you held a fundraiser for, for Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris. Do you see the Democratic Party here as being the party for business? Because traditionally, and if we look at the potential tax rate rises in their plans, it may not be in terms of the financials. Talk me through the thinking here. Well, first, I think it's important to recognize Equinox and any of our brands, whether it be Equinox, SoulCycle, or Blink or Equinox Hotels are, are not political. So none of the companies endorse candidates, and I think that's very important. And, and we also believe very strongly that everybody has their right to vote um, regardless of, of their affiliations. What I'm hoping for, regardless of who wins, is on the other side of the election is two things happen. Um, one is we double down our efforts around COVID um, because we've got a long way to go, and that's going to help our business dramatically, and that's really important. Um, and then secondly, what, what, I, what I hope for is we spend um, a good amount of time um, coming together and uniting versus um, being divisive, but uniting and, and healing as a country because the, the U.S. and the world um, needs a lot from us and, and we got a lot of things to do going forward. So th that's my hope, regardless of who wins. Yeah, I'm with you, my friend. Transcends politics. Unity more important Correct. if we can get there. Harvey Spivak, fantastic to have you on the show, sir. Thank you so much and uh, come back soon. The executive chairman and managing partner of Equinox Holdings. All right, up next, nearly half of the people who work in the city have lost income because of the pandemic. I speak to the head of the Robin Hood Foundation about helping those who can't afford to take that sort of hit. Stay with us. More next. Welcome back to First Move. The Robin Hood Foundation is a charity whose mission is to lift New Yorkers out of poverty. Last year, they raised almost $130 million. That mission was made both harder and more critical when the city became the epicenter of the U.S. COVID-19 outbreak earlier this year. Even before the pandemic hit, nearly half of New Yorkers had less than $400 in savings. Now many have lost jobs and or income. Earlier this year, the charity set up an entirely separate fund to provide emergency COVID support. And to date, they've raised $60 million. Joining us now, Wes Moore, CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. Wes, fantastic to have you on the show and incredible work that you and your team are doing here. I believe half of the cash that you gave out in that separate fund went out in the form of literal cash 
handouts and grants and food. Just explain the scale of the challenge. Well, one of the things that we have seen throughout this crisis is not just the fact that COVID-19 has exacerbated the levels of disparity that we see in our communities, it's also exposed it. And, and your point earlier was a very important one, where even if we look at before COVID-19, the fact that we had over 40% of people who could not afford a $400 shock with cash, the fact that 23% of people who have lost their jobs due to COVID-19 are people who were living in poverty before COVID-19, i.e. we're talking about the working poor. So we already saw this massive level of instability that existed within the city of New York and beyond even before COVID-19. And so when we launched our relief fund, which by the way, was only the third time in our organization's history, we've done that. Once was after 9-11, the other was after Hurricane Sandy. But we saw that the distinct needs and the direct needs for people at that moment were actually simple things like food and things like cash assistance to be able to make it just day by day and month by month. And so that's why we mobilized and decided that those were the areas that we wanted to target our resources. Yeah, and I want people to understand as well, I believe your first grants went out March 20th. So before the government acted, you were already on the ground getting money, getting to support to people who were clearly immediately and, and desperately in need. Um, whereas it's not even just about the people that managed to get hold of some of that money from the CARES Act, though, because I know you highlight the fact that many people were immigrants. They simply didn't have access to support that was provided in the Care Act, the, the Care Act that came from the government, because this is the sort of forgotten people in this city and in many cities around the country and even around the world, the forgotten workers. And that's exactly right. And almost intentionally forgotten about, which makes that so heartbreaking was the fact that we passed this CARES Act, which, you know, and we actually tried to move and lobby and move or, and move the government to be able to capture everybody. But the reality is, even when you look at the cash assistance elements that were inside of the CARES Act, it left millions of people out. If, if you were undocumented, even if you were working and paying taxes, there was no cash assistance support for you. If you were part of a mixed status household, i.e. you had someone in your household who was undocumented, there was no cash assistance element for you. If you were a student, there was no cash assistance element for you. If you were working but not making enough money in order to meet the tax filing threshold, i.e. again, the working poor, there was no cash assistance element for you. And so in many ways, what we saw was an exacerbation of how policy really has this, this, this almost dastardly focus of saying the people who need the support most actually end up getting the least. And that's the thing that we felt that philanthropy and our work at Robinhood uniquely could help to try to fill that hole uh, that was being created by, frankly, uneven policies. Yeah. And, and there's a racial element here, too. And I've heard you say many times um, there's a direct link between your race and poverty quite frankly. And this is something that begins very early and it follows you throughout your life. And we just did a study and I know you're an intrinsic part of that. Um, we talked about it on the show, the University of Columbia saying 26% now of minority families are living in poverty in the United States. It's, it's bigger than just New York City. Talk to me about this and then we can talk about fixes because they're desperately well, needed. And you, you can't talk about uh, economic instability without also talking about the, how race plays yeah. into it. 
I mean, because if, even if you just look at what the data continues to tell us, so take education as one example, where the data shows us that a college degree increases lifetime earnings by nearly $1 million. So people would say, well, then of course it makes sense that we have to encourage not just college acceptance, but also college completion. But the research also shows us something else, that black college graduates on average earn less than white high school dropouts. So if you think about that, it's impossible to separate the role that race plays into these various dynamics. And so I think part of our responsibility is to be honest and disaggregate what the data continues to show us and show the fact that if race is, and still is currently, the leading indicator of life outcomes that we have within the United States, you know, uh, whether it's life expectancy or whether it's academic achievement, uh, income or wealth or mental or physical health, uh, the type of treatment that you receive in hospitals, maternal mortality, if race is the leading and most reliable predictor of life outcomes, it's impossible to come up with solutions that we think are going to be colorblind because hmm. that's not the way the society continues to be structured and operates. Yeah, it's, you've raised so many great points. And I know you've just been added as well to the, the board of, of Under Armour as well, which is all part of what the business community needs to do to tackle this as well. But we are all in it together. Whereas what are some of the key fixes? I feel very passionately about education. Talk me through what needs to change. And are we going to see that in the next four years? I, I, I think we will continue to see it for four years. But I think the thing that we'll continue to see is it's not because we're waiting on a day. It's not because we're waiting on an election. And it's not because we're waiting on a leader. It's because we're watching everyone step up. It's because we are watching the business community that are making real strides in order to say what becomes the business community's level of influence to be able to use economic levers to be able to address the racial gaps. It's the activist community that's pushing the business community to be better. And that, you know, when we're looking at movements that have happened, I think one thing you just look at the at the Washington football team. The fact that they changed the name to the Washington football team didn't just happen because activists have been pushing for something for years. It's because at some point FedEx and other businesses said, we don't feel comfortable with our name on the stadium if you keep the name of the old football team for, for, for Washington. It's because policymakers are actually yeah. thinking about the fact that we have different levers that we have to pull. So this has to be something that we have to move in a unified fashion to be able to address a central problem of inequality and inequity within our society. Yeah, we all have to be activists. Now, speaking of activism, Wes, next week... The Investor Conference, 65 speakers, 21 sessions. It's a veritable who's who. We're showing uh, some of the names as well. George Yankopoulos, the Regeneron Chief Science Officer, Hank Paulson. You name it, you have them. And you raise so much money and you have done over the last seven years. First virtual one. Talk us through what we can expect and people can still buy tickets. And they can still buy tickets. And we're very excited about this. You know, over the last seven years, the conference has helped us raise $45 million yeah. uh, in order to fight poverty. It's because, uh, you know, 100% of the proceeds go towards the benefit of Robin Hood and go towards this issue of the poverty fight. And so, yes, it's a chance where you will get a chance to see, hear from everyone from the Stan Druckenmillers to the Melody Hobsons and, 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 and Hank Paulsons and Ray McGuire's and, and a collection of others, and also to include Robin Hood board members like Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, it's a chance yeah. where... For two days, you get not just great investment advice, and it's a must-see event for anyone who's putting money in the market, uh, but also to know that your resources and your capital are going directly to the poverty fight. 
it's going directly to those who need it most. And so we're, uh, we're, we're thrilled to see as many people, especially now in a virtual environment, where we're excited to invite the world uh, to come join us for those two days. Phenomenal. Wes, good luck next week. I know it's going to be amazing. And come back and talk to us soon. And thank you to you and your team. You're doing an awesome job. Wes Moore, yes. CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. Thank you. All right, still to come, major moves to rein in the power of Google. More details next. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. Justice Department expected to file a massive lawsuit against Google, alleging the company has stifled competition to maintain its dominant position in search. Paul and Monica joins me now. We should say alphabet, but Google is obviously the search function. Paul, this is massive. The biggest we've seen for, what, two decades. What are we expecting? Yeah, this would be the biggest, uh, Julia, since the landmark case against Microsoft two uh-huh. decades ago. CNN's Brian Fong reporting that you are going to see the DOJ come out with anti-competitive investigation into Google, mainly for the search practices, which is important, of course, because search, despite all the diversification in the broader Alphabet parent company, it really still is Google and search revenue that drives that train, so to speak. It's about 85% of total revenues. And, you know, the government's expected to make the case that Google has stifled competition, which is bad for other businesses as well as consumers. So much of the traffic that no one else can get a looking, quite frankly. What you have to prove in an antitrust case, though, is that the consumer is harmed. And the counter that Google will always put forward here is it's free. That is a great point. And I think that what you are seeing right now is just a possible reconsideration of what really constitutes an antitrust case in big tech. I mean, you look also at companies like Facebook that are really coming under the crosshairs of regulators as well, also a free service. And then Amazon, Apple, you know, not necessarily free services, but also companies that consumers may not feel that they're being harmed necessarily, but it really is a case where the dominance of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google may really just stifle competition and be bad for the uh, tech industry writ large. That's the case that obviously the government will take. The companies clearly disagree with that notion. Yeah, you don't know what you're missing because you missed it. We'll see. Yeah. Paul and Monica, we have to go. We will talk about this again. Strong views on both sides, I can see. Great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, that's it for the show. Well, that was not enough. First News back tomorrow. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.